special two-hour Inside Politics this morning to end the year. Off the top, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Then the Ajax decision with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, followed by conversations with Andrew Weaver, Rich Coleman, and Premier John Horgan. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome to a special two-hour season-ending edition of Inside Politics. We have a lot to talk about and not much time to do it in. So welcome to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, guys, the big news this week, we talked about it a whole lot before it happened, the Site C decision. I don't want to rehash the decision itself, but uh, there's a lot of interesting questions as we forge ahead. Uh, uh, what challenges does the government have in controlling costs in a project that's now estimated at over $10 billion? Uh, the Premier mentioning labour agreements. What does the future labour situation look like? Not to mention the political fallout. Keith? Well, yeah, where to begin? Um it's uh, first of all, it's got to still withstand some court challenges. West Wimberley Ban and Prophet River have already uh, said they're going to try to seek an injunction. Uh, you've got uh, the landowners, I think, preparing to try to, I think, t- take further legal action, asking the Auditor General to get involved. I don't think she will. Um, and in terms of containing costs, uh, I wouldn't take any uh, uh, hope that we're the ten point seven billion dollar figure is going to be the final one. I mean, I'm still. You know, the geological concerns over the dam are still out there. They haven't been totally addressed. So uh, the labor agreement, I think you're going to see more union, uh, unionized building trades on site and more apprenticeships. But uh, the big decision has been made. I think it's a pivotal moment for the NDP government. It's a defining moment uh, that they're willing to embrace a, a project that they really had problems with. Uh, going forward, one cabinet minister described it to me as we made a pragmatic and not an activist decision. And I think that is uh, an example of a different lens that they're looking through this this thing through from opposition when you're sort of an activist-oriented uh, political party against everything to one being in government where you've got to make some hard decisions and unpopular ones, and this is one of them. Yeah. Vaughn, uh, what was your take on how we forge our way ahead here? Um, Horgan himself was always careful never to say that he was going to cancel Site C. All he ever said was he was going to review it. Some of his ministers weren't as careful, but I think he stuck to what he said he was going to do. And I think the government deserves credit for making a decision that was going to alienate a bunch of its supporters. He he certainly uh, knew that, and he did it anyway. And Look, we talk all the time about tough decisions in government, but I think this is one of the, genuinely, one of the toughest an NDP government's ever made in this province, and I think the Premier deserves credit for that. Yeah, I can only imagine what was happening behind closed doors, but there has to be some MLAs, uh, and especially a couple in Cabinet, who are not very happy about this. Rob, uh, what's your read on the situation? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Michelle Mungal and George Heyman looked like they were at a funeral uh, at the press <laughs> announcing this thing. I thought uh, Minister Mungal was going to burst into tears, but uh, not quite. I mean, you know, uh, I agree with everything that was said. At this point, though, for the New Democrats, as of now, despite all of what they've said, the Liberal blame uh, on Site C, uh, they own the project from this point forward. And, and one of the worst-case scenarios for them is going to be that if the legal challenges are successful in delaying Site C, but not, you know, torpedoing it entirely, that they're going to miss river diversion dates, they're going to uh, jack up costs, and at some point the New Democrats will end up wearing an even higher price tag on this thing. So, I mean, if you're opposed to Site C, you're now um, the enemy of the New Democrats on this project in a way, because they need to bring it in within those uh, number figures that were in the BCUC report, and 
people blockading it or challenging it in court uh, are only going to make the new Democrats look bad in the end as if they balloon the project. So it's a bit of an awkward situation going forward for everyone, too. I, I was caught by uh, basically the premier saying, in essence, that sort of uh, just kind of summarize what he said. The, the the hardest part of the project is done, and the rest of the seventy five percent is going to be a lot more uh, not easy, but a lot more well planned out. And that, in uh, in a way, will help mitigate this cost thing. But I'm not entirely sure I buy that, Keith. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a oft quoted study of uh, dams around the world where pretty well all of them come in uh, over budget, either by a little or by a heck of a lot. So we're already over budget with this one by, by a couple of billion dollars, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes even even higher than that. Now, having said that, um, the final numbers aren't going to be tallied up for some time. Uh, the next election uh, rolls around in 2021. This dam is by no means completed, and it, the final numbers will not be in yet. So if it has an impact on on the public or the voters, I don't think it's going to be felt necessarily in the next provincial election, maybe the one after that. But voters have, a, um, I think, are very forgiving for on a number of things, and I think this thing is going to um, bleed over time in terms of public opinion and be replaced by other issues, notably Kinder Morgan. The Kinder Morgan pipeline, I think, uh, as that one heats up, if we ever get to a construction point for the Kinder Morgan pipeline, the, the amount of protests and drama and arrests and nightly news coverage of this of civil disobedience is going to dwarf everything about Site C. Site C, I really think, I never detected a lot of passion in the NDP caucus about Site C, other than people like Michelle Mongal, George Heyman, and Lana Popham. Uh, you didn't really, you know, I don't think I ever had a conversation with Carol James about Site C over the years. So this was not an issue that dominated that caucus. Uh, Kinder Morgan, though, is an issue, I think, that is much more to the to the fore for in terms of uh, priority issues for a lot of Democrats, particularly since the NDP is an urban party now. It's not a rural party. Site C is very rural. Uh, Kinder Morgan, I think, is going to dominate uh, this the political discussion in a way that Site C never did. Well, let's talk about Andrew Weaver, uh, who has seized on this uh, as uh, being outrageous. Uh, he's fuming. He's not in the mood to be conned, as he told me yesterday. Uh, he's also apparently not giving up, uh, saying he met with the, the Premier, uh, the Finance Minister, and the Minister of Environment uh, yesterday. Uh, on the Weaver front, Vaughn, uh, window dressing or, or more than that? Well, I think you got a bit of a pillow fight going on with Weaver when he attacks the NDP. Uh, he negotiated an agreement to keep this government in power back in the spring. Uh, he made he he extracted the concessions that were important to him, most notably the referendum on proportional representation. And he made it very, very clear as we headed into the final decision on Site C that, one, he thought the government was going to approve it, and two, he wasn't going to bring down the government over that. He also, Shane, this week on CKNW Radio in Vancouver, made a completely reckless mm-hmm. accusation against Horgan, which turned out not to be true. He basically told the live radio that that Horgan uh, planned to do this all along and that he had said this way back in the spring. Well, it turned out not to be true. And Weaver had to apologize. But, you know, this is a guy who's sharing power with Horkin and wants us to think that he knows what he's doing. And I think he ended up damaging his own credibility on that. Yeah, and he's threatening a recall campaign against Michelle Mungall. Uh, but as you mentioned, Vaughn, uh, there was nothing in the agreement between the two parties on Site C or stopping the dam. Uh, and he certainly uh, has pledged many times in recent weeks that he's not going to pull down the government over this. So, uh, Rob, what's your read? Well, yeah. <laughs> I think he's skirting close to a line that is going to prompt a, a reaction from New Democrats by actively kind of 
mentioning this recall campaign against a sitting new Democrat cabinet minister. Uh, you know, he, talking to John Horgan in the year-end interviews and hearing what else he was saying, you get the impression that he is extremely unimpressed by that, and that mm. well, he's kind of bit his tongue in pushing back on the Greens publicly, that you might be getting to a point where the pillow fight, um, you know, they start swinging the pillows a little bit harder. <laughs> because uh, it's it's tough for New Democrats to take that, I think, that, that Weaver is huffing and puffing. He's not going to blow the house down, but he's running around lighting fires all over the place, uh, most of which end up just backfiring on him. But, it, you know, I think... He's not going to pull the pin on the government, and it's not the ultimate stress test of their relationship, but it is fraying, uh, I think, some goodwill to try to bring Michelle Mung. I mean, he, he could bring all the MLAs down and have the ultimate recall campaign if he believes Site C is such an issue for voters that they need to recall the energy minister. But he, he chooses not to do that with a new election, so it's tough to, to really take uh, him seriously on that one. Yeah. Uh, on on the natural resource front, we've had a continuing conversation with uh, about how the NDP government sort of positions themselves on that. We, we all know that they're going to battle uh, Trans Mountain uh, tooth and nail, but it was an interesting week on that front because we had the Site C decision on Monday. Uh, they're forging ahead with a major project. And then here in Kamloops yesterday, uh, they turned down the KGHM Ajax mine, which was proposed for this community, highly divisive project. But it was an interesting bookend week when it comes to natural resource projects for this government. Keith? Yeah, no, the Ajax one sort of came out of the blue uh, for for a lot of us. We're sort of fixated on Site C for so long. I mean, that was such a dominant issue, uh, wondering where the cabinet was going to go. But uh, Ajax, Ajax, the decision on Ajax certainly fits the NDP's, I think, approach to a number of natural resource projects. I think um, there's going to be a lot of mines and applications that are going to be stayed, uh, you know, set down. Uh, and not proceeding because uh, the NDP really has a, a fundamental problem with uh, a lot of fossil fuel projects uh, going forward. So not surprised by Ajax. I mean, the, the, the feeling, I guess, it was too close to town. You know better than I do that uh, that seemed to be the overriding feeling. But considering George Heyman's comments on this project and projects like it in the past, not entirely surprising at all that Ajax is, is a no-go. Yeah, one of the big ones there, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on in that project, but one of the big ones uh, from the government and George Heyman's comments yesterday was about the the, uh, the threat to First Nations treaty rights and, and Aboriginal title. Uh, but he also turned around, uh, and I don't know if you guys are listening to his conference on this, but he also turned around and said that does not actually equate to a veto for this or any other project. Vaughn? Yes, that's right. He may, was careful to say that it doesn't mean a veto, it just means there's a problem with this one. And the one thing about this decision that I think made it easier for the New Democrats is that the environmental review process that was mostly completed under the B.C. Liberals had identified, what, about 50 concerns and problems with the project, and you had uh, 20 of those are serious ones. You've had, what, Kamloops Council voted against it twice. I, I noticed that the two liberal MLAs from Kamloops uh, were kind of lukewarm. Uh, they expressed regret mm-hmm. about the decision, but said that, you know, they had to respect the environmental review. So uh, I think going forward, the problem is more the one that you identified off the top, which is, are we going to have some way to approve mining projects in this province that stands up to both environmental scrutiny and First Nations approval. And I think we may, the, the, the new government may have to find a way to get back in there and maybe have First Nations partnerships up front, maybe have a level of job guarantees for First Nations. 
this one, I think, was going to be a non-starter with this government, and even the Liberals might have balked at approving it. But we're getting better at turning down mines in this province than in developing them, and I think that's mm-hmm. something the whole province needs to think about going forward. Yeah, last word to you, Rob, on this sort of careful course the, the province has to chart on natural resource projects. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I don't think it's any surprise that they waited until after Site C to announce this. They'd have, they would have looked like the party of no, playing into that that liberal uh, attack that the New Democrats oppose you know, most of these natural resource projects and the jobs that come with them. So they wait to Site C, disappoint people on Site C. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure the environmental movement is very pleased on their decision on Ajax and uh, the continued hammering they're doing against the federal government on the, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue. So for the Democrats, they're trying to find that balance to push back on what's going to be a, you know, what is your vision for natural resource projects? Are you just going to shoot them all down one by one to, to sort of, give people a sense that they're not always uh, no, but uh, on some of them they, they certainly are. The, the UNDRIP question keeps coming up, the veto question. Horgan and now Heyman have been very clear that there is no veto on projects, but you still hear a lot of people out there believing that that's the, uh, the NDP position, so they'll have to wrestle with that too. All right, uh, we're, uh, why don't we hit a commercial break and we'll pick up our conversation with Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, I don't need to tell you, it's been a hell of a year on the political scene in this province. Uh, uh, someone ought to write a book, maybe, on that. Uh, Rob? That'd be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you dove into this, uh, and I just wanted to touch on it really quickly uh, and kind of the larger story of, you know, your most memorable moments. Uh, what was the biggest deal of this of this crazy political year? And, and I know, Rob, you have written a book, uh, so why don't we start with you? Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary year, if you think about it. The first, the closest election in B.C.'s history, the first minority government since 1952, the first time an opposition party's defeated a government and uh, taken power without a new election, uh, I think, in 114 years. And we saw the LG flex her kind of power. Uh, people, a lot of people think that office is just some person who does wine tastings and reads children's books to different school groups across the province, but actually has power. So, I mean, I, I have to, I, for me, the moment is the LG's decision. That, that was, uh, that really, um, you know, to reject the advice of a sitting premier to dismiss Christy Clark in that way to go to John Horgan was a um, not insignificant move, very rare, um, and uh, I think people will be studying that. I, you know, the immediate history, I think the short-term history, is it was a common-sense move. I don't hear a lot of people really looking back saying it didn't make sense to give Horgan the chance to govern so close to another election uh, for the, the last election, but that to me is, a, is the pivotal moment of the year and one we'll be studying for years to come. You know it was kind of a funny intro to that, but uh, the other person who helped you in that book is Richard Zussman. Uh, and what isn't funny is what has happened to him, uh, who, in fact, has lost his job and in a decision I think that we can all safely say is, is from our perspective, insane. Uh, Richard's a friend, uh, he's a colleague, uh, and he's in a rough spot. So I do want to recognize that and throw out some props to Richard and his family right now. And I think I speak for all of us saying that I hope uh, this all works out and that he gets his job back. Uh, Vaughn? I've read the book that... Rob and Richard wrote, and it is going to be a book that you'll keep on your shelf in years to come when you want to go back over what is one of the most extraordinary years 
in British Columbia politics. And the book is very, very well told. It's edge-of-your-seat stuff, a lot of good detail. It's a great book. Most news organizations would be very proud to have uh, someone on their staff having produced this. I know the Vancouver Sun is, is very proud of Rob's work on it. Uh, the CBC's decision with Zussman is inexplicable to me and appalling, and I hope they reverse it. But that book is something, when it comes out next spring, that people want to get their hands on, because this year, I've been doing this job for almost 34 years, and 2017 is one of the most amazing years in B.C. political history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Keith, uh, memorable moments for you? Uh, just First of all, I've read the book, too, and it's a, it's a great book. If you're a political junkie, you're, you're going to definitely want to get this thing when it comes out next spring. Um, yeah, for me, I think the, the pivotal, or the most, there's many days of drama. Election night was was unbelievable. It was just high drama of the of the highest level. But I really think the day of the of the change in government when Horgan went to government house and it played out through the afternoon into the evening. We were on the front lawn of you know global. We were going live for hours on the front lawn of the legislature as were other TV networks. And the, this what I found really remarkable was the number of tourists who were out there, Americans who had no idea how our political system worked. And I'll never, I'll never forget this one fellow, he's from the American South, said, y'all mean to tell me that some lady living in a house on a hill over there is going to decide who's going to be the government in this province? I said, yep, that's how it works. <laughs> and we're cool with that. <laughs> yeah. He said, this is, we're totally fine with it. And he, he just couldn't believe it. He said, well, that's just a remarkable way of, of governing things. I said, it is. And we don't normally you, uh, get to this point where this actually comes into play, but it's about to happen tonight. And they, as I explained this to Americans, they were just gobsmacked that that's how we do things. But it's our, it's our system of government. And as Rob says, I don't think anybody really now has any problem with this at all. It unfolded the way it did, and, uh, and we move on. And now we've got a minority government, and uh, things are functioning. Yeah. We only got a few minutes left. I want to touch on this really quickly uh, from all three of you. As we look ahead to the new year, uh, what do we have to look forward to as the big issues this government's going to have to face? Keith? I think uh, ICBC is a big one. Uh, they've got to fix this thing, uh, find a way to keep our rates down, not skyrocketing. There's some fundamental problems in that. And I think uh, it's, uh, they've got to get the affordability issue, uh, get their heads around it. They've got to do something on housing. I'm not convinced they can do much of anything that's really going to have a dramatic impact. But housing and daycare are their top two things uh, in ICBC. But the other one, we've talked about it before, the cannabis legislation, the mar- legalization of marijuana is going to have a profound impact. And uh, Mike Farmworth has got his job up, uh, laid out in front of him. It's a big one to amend a lot of legislation in this province that's been on the books for years to accommodate this new law. Vaughn? Rustling up enough money to keep the promises they've made that they haven't kept yet. Mm. Housing is very high on that list. Child care is another one. New Democrats said they had solutions to all this stuff. All it takes is money, but provincial finances are getting tight, so that's their big challenge the year ahead. Uh, last word to you, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I think child care was a defining issue in the election, and uh, they got to roll out a plan for that even if the feds don't bring out new money, and that's going to be expensive. But it's one of those ones where I think the NDP has a lot of public goodwill, and if they need to cancel something to move that money over or surcharge somewhere else or stealth tax their way into funding that program... I could see that happening uh, to get it up and running in the next few years. All right. And uh, you let me know where I need to send the money to get a signed version of that book of yours, by the way. 
You got it. All right, guys, I, uh, before we go, I just want to take a quick moment and uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all of the, of the work you did and the insight you provided here on the show every week. Uh, it's no secret where I got the concept of the show from. Cutting Edge of the Ledge was absolutely my favorite radio to listen to for many years. And uh, deep down inside, I always wanted to be on that show. And to be able to revive it and have the three of you come on every week has been a, in no small way a bucket list accomplishment for me. Uh, and more importantly, I get a ton of positive feedback from people uh, in this community and all over the province who, who tune in every week. Uh, the intent here is to provide insight, context, discussion about politics and hot political stories, and, and at the bottom of it all, to really engage people and to give them something enjoyable to listen to. And thanks in large part to all three of you. Uh, I think we've accomplished that. So thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Happy New Year. All right. Merry Christmas, guys. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you in January. Take care. Bye-bye. There's Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry, uh, and we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics. On the other side of the news with Bob Price, we'll sit down with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian for some KGHM Ajax reaction. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, give us a listen this morning. Pleasure to be joined in studio by Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Welcome. Morning. I think you're the third person on this show who's actually been in studio. Ah. The premier uh, liberal leadership contender, Michael Lee, and yourself. So there you go. Well, this is an honor. <laughs> uh, Ken, huge news for this community. Kind of came out of the blue yesterday afternoon. Obviously, we all know what it is. It's no to KGH Ajax uh, from the provincial government. Uh, we have an environmental assessment concluded federally, which seems to be leaning towards a no, although we're still waiting on a decision from the federal government, although it may be mute because they needed two yeses. Uh, so you've had a night to sleep on it. Uh, this morning, just, you know, how, have you, how are you viewing the reaction and, and the decision this morning? Well, a couple of things. You know, first of all, as you point out, it was a sudden announcement. I uh, really uh, heard about noon that it was going to come at 2 o'clock, and right on the button at 2 o'clock, I got a letter from the Environmental Assessment Office uh, to myself indicating that it was a no. And then I listened into uh, Minister Heyman at 3 o'clock with uh, other members of the media from around the province, and uh, and then it was actually about four or five that uh, uh, Radio Canada indicated to me that the federal government had weighed in on it. So I heard uh, about uh, Catherine McKenna's decision as well. So it was very sudden, uh, but it was very definitive. And the one thing that I didn't want to see was uh, another statement that says we're going to continue to review right. this. I think this has been a divisive issue in this community. It has dragged on since 2011. Uh, it has permeated provincial campaigns, federal campaigns, many municipal campaigns, and uh, I, I think uh, it's pitted neighbor against neighbor in some instances, and uh, we have to get past it, we have to heal, and we have to get on with uh, looking at other ways to expand our economy in Kamloops, and uh, uh, we need to uh, put this behind us. All right, well, the project isn't entirely dead yet. I mean, they do have some cards to play. Uh, they could resubmit for another assessment review, or as I understand it, they could launch a judicial review. So we don't know what they're going to do. But as a community, you mentioned, and I heard it from Todd Stone, Peter Millibar, and other people uh, who are who are voices of this community that we need to, to pick up and, and heal. It has been divisive. How do we heal? How do we move forward as a community uh, and kind of reunite those divides that have been created? Yeah, well, on the first point, in terms of uh, potential, uh, you know, legal uh, appeals to this situation, I don't know that that would make a lot of sense given the uh, consistent nature of the opposition 
and the decisions uh, sort of stacking up against the company. But in terms of us going forward, I think uh, one of the things we've done as a city is uh, got our official community plan in place. And that plan says that 43% of our growth over the next 20 years is going to be in the southwest sector in the Aberdeen and Pineview area. And there was a bit of a pall hanging over that prediction because of the potential interface uh, mm-hmm. between uh, residential and industrial kinds of uses. So I think now we can, with some surety, get on with that kind of development and the kind of infrastructure we need in the southwest sector. And Calumps is short of areas in which to develop residential uh, properties. So I think that that's a good news sign. In terms of the economic impact, uh, you know, we have to look at some other projects. Uh, Kinder Morgan comes to mind as one that will uh, add to our tax base as well as provide jobs in this region. Uh, and then we have uh, some big ticket uh, building projects in Kamloops just about to come. So we have uh, the uh, hospital expansion, the patient care tower yep. there, and then we have uh, potentially the BC Lottery Corporation and, and a rebuild down on, on uh, their property. So we have some big things happening in Kamloops. We need to keep people here working in Kamloops, and and, uh, I get that. This was never about being anti-mining. I think that, uh, you know, we have uh, a great relationship with uh, uh, Highland Valley Copper, with uh, the Afton Newgold project. We have companies in town like uh, Molly Cop and Rock Mining that, that service the mining industry. It was never about being anti-mining. It was about this particular property and in particular how close it was to Kamloops. The reaction so far that I've seen is people who are a jubilant, uh, this community stood up for something and made a bold decision, or people on the other side of the spectrum who are saying, oh, God, Kamloops is closed for business. Uh, oh, I mean, you're going to buy cheap houses there now because no one's going to want to live there. There's no jobs. Uh, what's your read of that kind of different, highly partisan reaction to this whole thing? Well, you know, I, I think that's indicative of the way that this has been a wedge issue in Kamloops. And, uh, you know, I, I saw it certainly during this last by-election campaign that, uh, you know, people were very entrenched in their opinions and, and indignant. And I, I suppose that was a reflection of how long this had been hanging over us, plus the fact that, uh, you know, you were either with us or against us kind of mentality. There was no sort of middle middle ground. You know, I take no pleasure in the fact that this has been turned down. I just want to move along, and, and I want the uh, uh, council and, and the citizens of Camelos to come together in terms of uh, other opportunities that we can uh, get behind and, and uh, start moving Camelos forward. I assume this means that Councillor Caver's motion to have another vote to, to back up the First Nations, it was essentially dead now. And then it's been like, it's been withdrawn. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, last question to you. Uh, in some ways, I think this 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 situation is a metaphor for the city itself. Uh, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but in my view, Kamloops is is transitioning to being in every way a city, an urban center in this area. And there's a lot that comes with that. Do you kind of see the city? taking a corner, taking a a new turn and kind of charting a new course here? Yeah, you know, I think that's very astute. I see us moving away from a resource-based economy and and moving towards a knowledge-based economy. And uh, as as we see the impact of things like Thompson Rivers University in our community and how that changes uh, employees in the neighborhoods and, and uh, the kinds of things that we value as citizens of Kamloops, uh, I think we are changing and uh, I think it's for the better. All right. Uh, we're out of time, but Ken, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir, for coming in. And uh, it's always nice to have somebody in studio. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Uh, hopefully we won't have any big news this afternoon. But that's uh, Camelot's Mayor Ken Christian. I will take a break here in Inside Politics. On the other side, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. 
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line by the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Andrew, welcome. Why don't we start with the big news, uh, probably, of the last few months, and, and it happened this week with the Site C decision. Uh, you, I know, are, are disappointed, as is your caucus. Uh, so, first off, just sort of in reflection, uh, looking back in the decision, now that you've had a couple of days to process all of this, uh, what, what's sort of going through your head today? Uh, we've moved from being sort of shocked to being very angry, um, very angry and very disappointed. Uh, the decision was made flouting the evidence before it. You know, uh, it's all about choices. And the spin that the BC NDP have put out just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. They've argued that if they were to bring the it's $2.1 billion of expenses uh, onto debt, that it would affect their ability to do other things. But the reality is that that's simply false. Uh, you know, back in August of this year, uh, the BC NDP stood and proclaimed that tolls were going to be removed from the Portman and Goldeneers bridges, and they did remove them, and that brought $4.7 billion onto provincial debt. Now, at the time, the BC Greens were the only party saying, don't do this, because it's just political, you know, political games to try to buy votes. You're going to uh, affect, you know, the provincial debt, and it was an argument that they simply ignored. Now... They choose to bring, they, they can't bring 2.1 billion on um, because uh, of it would affect provincial debt. It simply doesn't hold water. It's about choices, and frankly, I think the BC NDP caucus and their supporters should be very ashamed of this decision because it, it it's, flies in the face of good financial management. It flies in the face of indigenous reconciliation, and it flies in the face of doing what you said you'd do in the in the in the election campaign. You know, they also could have, if they wanted, they were worried about bringing the debt because if you cancelled it, it the, the debt would have to come in on one year's fiscal books, which would be 2017, 2018. And we have balanced budget legislation, which requires, uh, you know, ministers to take a 20% salary cut if they don't, if they don't uh, 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 have a balanced budget. Well, it's very simple to realize, to recognize that this is a one-time problem that the B.C. Liberals cause, and they could solve this do it by taking a page out of the B.C. Liberal books and just for one year uh, uh, putting in introducing legislation to allow a budget to be uh, 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 a, a, a deficit budget for one year. They could have stopped this. I, I'm convinced that there was every intention to continue forward with this project all along. You know, I sat through the debates we had here. I stood alone in the legislature until 2015, stating that Site C should not go forward for the reason, financial reasons. You know, there was begrudgingly, there was uh, Mr. Horgan came along and supported a vote to stop it. Right? The rumors are that there was tension within his caucus, and I'm not convinced that this wasn't in the cards all along. And I, I just feel, I feel, uh, you know, I feel that many British Columbians have been betrayed by this decision because the, the, the reasons just don't hold water. All right. So, and here's the interesting thing: you hold a significant amount of power. You got your three-seat support, which the NDP desperately need. You had the initial agreement you hammered out to align that support, uh, and yet a uh, site C uh, rejecting it wasn't in the initial agreement, and B, you're not going to pull down government over this, even though that's the biggest trigger you have. Why not? 
Well, here's the thing. We, in our agreement, we, we, it said that we would send that the Site C would be sent to the British Columbia Utilities Corporation uh, uh, Commission sorry, for a, uh, uh, an assessment. They did, and the assessment provided exactly what we expected it to provide, the, the unequivocal evidence that would allow one to make the right decision, which is to actually stop moving forward in this billion-dollar boondoggle, which, by the way, is now $10.7 billion, $2 billion back in 2001, $5 billion when I was up, up, up there in 2010, $7 7.9 billion a couple of years later, 8.3 billion after that, 8.9 billion then, and 10 billion from BCUC, BCNDP announced 10.7 billion. And we're two years, two and a little over two years into the project. This thing is going to go to 12, 15 billion, no question. It's our very own muskrat falls. And the ratepayers ultimately are the ones who are going to have to pay for this reckless decision. You know, uh, we didn't. We, we we assumed, and we were led to believe that the BCNDP, you know, they had ministers campaigning on stopping it. Uh, that they would, they that the BCUC would, they would respond appropriately to the BCUC report. We knew what would be in that report because if the BCNDP were, didn't have the courage to say they'd stop it, uh, we had the courage to say we would. But we realized that they wanted to have more evidence. They got the evidence they needed. There's nothing they needed to, more to make the decision that they did. And they ignored the evidence. They ignored their experts. They ignored the wills of indigenous communities. And they went and approved it anyway, which could on, only tells me that this, this had been in Mr. Horgan's cards all along, is that he was a supporter of Site C. And uh, that, that, you know, because there's no other way of looking at this decision. You still won't pull down government over it, Andrew, though. And that would have been the biggest thing that may have given government pause for thought. Well, so we have to look, um, in terms of pulling down government, there is a budget coming up in February. We want to take a look at that budget. The Site C decision, uh, Site C is clearly not going to be reflected in the budget because it's going to be reflected on a tax on future generations. Let's see what they actually put in this budget. So we, 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 uh, we uh, to be honest, we, we, we were convinced that Site C was going to be stopped, literally convinced, because it was the evidence was there. So it, it hadn't crossed our minds that, they would, would uh, continue forward. So pulling down government, we've been elected to govern. We have not been elected to pill up, pick up our bat and ball and, 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 and run away every, at every uh, uh, issue of conflict. However, the question, the, the, the question is this, how would pulling down government um, change the decision that was made? It's not sure to me that it would. We, the first opportunity we would have to pull government down would be the budget vote in, in you know, mid-February. Uh, then, then there would be an election probably in, in, in May or whenever the RIC gets returned and cabinets get sworn in. We got another year of billions of dollars spent on Site C. Where's their Power BC program? You know, this, this was their, their, what they were going to do instead of Site C. They were going to re-regularize the, the clean energy sector. Uh, it's gone. The, the, a clean energy a CEO contacted me two days ago and said he's demoralized. His industry is finished. I mean, that, that's, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a, a basically a blank check for a taxpayer-funded, ratepayer-funded mega project that's going to be way over budget relative to innovation and creativity distributed across our province in well-paying jobs where the capital risk is, is, is venture cap risk as opposed to taxpayer risk, and that industry is now walking. And this is just such a shame, such a shame. And you can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm, I don't know how to describe how disappointed I am and, uh, uh, with this decision. But the B.C. Liberals were no better on this. You know, do we think we're going to get a B.C. Green gov- majority government uh, in, in May? 
well, that's the risk that we would take. Uh, frankly, uh, I, I don't, you know, is, uh, elections are fought on more than one issue. Is this the issue, that the defining issue for all of British Columbia? Let's see what, what British Columbians have to say, and I encourage them to keep letting people know what, what they think about this project. Again, it's not only about Site C. It's about indigenous rights. It's about killing the clean energy sector in our province, where venture cap was coming in, creating small businesses, uh, vibrant businesses, uh, distributed jobs in small communities across the province. Just we have a archaic Luddite way of thinking in this province at the at this government level and it's just very sad uh, let's move on to some other issues here uh andrew i think one of the bigger ones uh, that's now that sort of uh, is now and will be in the new year is marijuana yep. uh what's the biggest challenge ahead in your eyes as we do this major public policy shift first off be, there is a requirement that legislation be brought in before july 1st we all accept that it is not the most burning issue for all british Columbians, and a lot of british Columbians would frankly want us to be spending more of our time in the issue of affordability and, and other pressing interests like ICBC skyrocketing, rate, skyrocketing, skyrocketing rates, etc. But with that said, in our view, we, we will be looking for, for, for two things. We agree with the BCNDP right off the front that the distribution of marijuana should go through the liquor distribution branch so that there is a central control of distribution uh, that where government is able to provide the regulatory oversight to ensure that uh, what is being sold has, has meet, the, meet the appropriate test to actually be what is said to be sold. So we support that we do not support at all having cannabis in government liquor stores. That should be simply not on the table. Our approach that we'll be pushing for is to allow small business uh, to be the retail outlet. Small business would require licensing both at the municipal and federal level, and and we'd like to see that uh, small businesses separate from alcohol so that we would not have cannabis and alcohol sold in the same same spots and we can have the government completely out of the business of selling cannabis, but in the business of distributing it. And on top of that, we want to ensure that our, our local um, cannabis industry, it's quite quite big here in BC, particularly in the Kootenays uh, and uh, some of the Gulf Islands here, West Coastal BC, uh, that it is protected so that we can actually ensure that they have a market, a legal market for their supply, which is taxed appropriately and brings in the appropriate uh, revenue to the province. This is a good source of revenue. We're taxing what is not presently being taxed, and, and we think it'll be reflected in budgets to come. My worry, again, is that government liquor stores will be fronting cannabis, and we don't want that, or there would be government-run you know, cannabis stores. Again, we don't want that. We want to you know, have small business uh, taking the retail aspect. So just to go back to your point about sort of bringing in existing operations, and I, you know, I'll use the word grandfathering for the lack of a better word, but uh, you want to bring in operations in certain parts of the province that are, that are creating marijuana now and make them essentially legal just overnight? Yeah, there would have to be a, a, a regulatory process. You know, the, the feds and the province will set the regulatory environment to allow for testing, uh, to allow inspection. And, and I, I guess overall, what, the way I would like to see it is to see that our craft cannabis industry in British Columbia mirror what was done with the craft beer industry, is that you might have a, a place that actually, uh, you know, grows cannabis and sells it in a, in, the, in a store on the farm that does it, and, you know, people can you know, can go there and sample what's there. It's, but we could have a craft beer store like we have a cannabis store. Uh, we'd ensure that, uh, you know, it'd be nice to be able to sell it across borders. But again, uh, education is critical too, that we don't want everyone walking around stoned in our cities and towns. We have to recognize that this is a, a substance that, create, that changes behavior and we have to ensure that the proper uh, rules are in place to ensure uh, safety for both the people consuming and people uh, who are, uh, you know, in and around uh, the cities. 
All right. Should people, should those, I mean, if, if it, we don't know what the retail model is going to look like, obviously it won't until the new year, but oh. should it be put in the hands of private businesses, Andrew, uh, should there be a screening mechanism to ensure that the criminal element isn't just migrating over under the guise of legality? Well, that's the thing. I think all licenses, uh, there, there needs to be, uh, you know, a proper licensing process. Uh, again, that can happen through, uh, through when you through applications of licensing and detailed checks as to who is applying and what the and where uh, the supply again would be controlled. Uh, controlled supply means that uh, it's distributed by the government, which would which would uh, eliminate an illegal distribution. And to me, that's the biggest issue: is the illegal distribution. The retail aspect is more mom and pop op- operations, uh, you know, con- selling on the street, just like like uh, you know, local liquor stores are in many communities across our province. As far as the Green Party's priorities in the new year, I mean, it's been a- it's been a hell of a 2017. Uh, looking ahead to 2018, what's what's uh, top in your priority list? We've got a number of things. Uh, we've been, we've given the BCNDP a, a little bit of breathing room on the affordability issue. I, I recognize it's beginning to creep outside of Metro Vancouver. It's certainly well and truly in Victoria. It's, it's outrageous in Metro Vancouver. It's happening in Nanaimo. I suspect, well, we know what's going on in Kelowna. You'll probably see, probably see housing rising in Kamloops as you have people leaving the big city of Vancouver and moving to other jurisdictions because they can sell their house for $3 million and they could buy a beautiful home for a third of that and pocket $2 million. So uh, Vancouver's now out of control. We need to uh, have very aggressive housing measures uh, to not, not to, to, uh, to, to, to clamp on speculation. Foreign buyers tax needs to be expanded across British Columbia. We need to have speculation taxes embedded. We need to remove loopholes that allow people, like corporations and others, to buy property and trust. We need to enable municipalities to to put in vacancy taxes and allow them to regulate Airbnbs and things like that. So I'm looking for very, very uh, aggressive measures taking uh, taken in the housing file. Uh, we've been promised they'll be forthcoming. I certainly hope they are because the BCNDP got an awful lot of seats. In, in this area, based on well, based on site C, frankly, and also on their affordability commitments, so that would be one of our priorities. I'd like to see the climate change um, uh, measures start to um, move forward. Uh, the introduction of a zero emission vehicle set standard that models what's going on in in Quebec and many 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 of the United States in the U.S. But you can't just do that without having a, an investment in terms of electrical charging infrastructure and enabling people to actually charge if they're filling up their car. So we're hoping to see that. We're hoping to see, um, you know, uh, move forward on, on more legislation to get to, for dealing with lobbyists. Um, but the really big ones are, uh, are what well, the environmental assessment process, that's going to be overhauled. And again, we've got to see uh, now starting to roll out the uh, Emerging Economy Task Force and the Innovation Commission. So there's lots of good work to do. Um, it's shame that that's been tainted with the over with the overhang of a a totally irresponsible site seed decision, but we'll 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 march on and uh, do the best we can in the months ahead. All right, uh, you kind of stepped in it a bit this week with your conversation with Lori Ackerman, uh, and now that you've had a couple of days to think about that, uh, any regrets there? I, I I come back to the fact that I'm convinced that the decision that we had was a decision that was made long a long time ago. This was not. There is no. I mean, the evidence is so in your face. How you could make any decision? And to stop it, based on everything before you, is just mind-boggling. You know, look at look at Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland and Labrador. The the hydro rates doubled are doubling there because a direct consequence of overruns. And there's no difference there from 
Site C, except, you know, again, Site C, two billion bucks are in the early 2000s, five billion bucks when I was up there in 2010. Uh, you know, now it's $10.7 billion. It's going to be 12 to 15. We're going to end up producing electricity at 13 cents, 12 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour. And at the same time, we've killed the renewable energy industry. And if we just have to look to what happened yesterday in Alberta, when they had the first result of their call for, environment, for uh, clean energy, they received 600 megawatts. That's, you know, basically Site C. 600 megawatts of wind that will be produced at 3.5 cents a kilowatt hour. 3.5 cents. That's a quarter of the price of Site C. And not only that, there will be not one dollar of taxpayer money used to build it because it's venture cap that will be building it. That's the future direction. That's the direction we should be heading in BC. We have existing dams that can, we can use to, to level our load here. And, 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 and it's just absolutely irresponsible that we haven't gone that direction. So I, am, I go back to that. I'm convinced that this decision was made a long time ago and, and, uh, and, and that ultimately it was based on a fear of being branded by the BC Liberals as anti-project, anti anti-construction, anti, uh, at the party of no. So rather than being principled, they, did ex they fell into exactly the trap the BC Liberals set for them, uh, which is uh, making this a completely reckless decision. All right. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a heck of a year. Uh, thank you for your time. And if I don't speak to you before, a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours. Thanks again, Shane, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you as well. That was Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party. We'll take a quick break to get to the news to the top of the hour. On the other side, Inside Politics continues, and we begin with the conversation with BC Liberal leader and interim opposition leader, Rich Coleman. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We begin hour two by talking to the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, opposition leader, Rich Coleman. Rich, welcome to the show. Why don't we start with uh, what's probably the biggest uh, news this week, if not uh, in the last few months, uh, the Site C decision. So off the top, I mean, there's been a lot to build up to this moment. Uh, the Premier obviously uh, deciding to forge ahead with it. Uh, your thoughts on, on this whole situation? Well, he could have sent himself a lot of trouble and just not ever gone down the road where they actually delayed some of the stuff and cost a bunch of money to the project because everybody knew, anybody was paying attention, and I believe the Premier as well because he certainly was a keen watcher of hydro when he was a critic, that uh, this particular dam was the right dam and the right, right decision at the right time. It was processed in huge detail i had i had bc hydro in my portfolio at the time that the decision was to go ahead and trying to get to the final investment decision that ultimately bill bennett when he was a minister brought to cabinet and and you know this dam has been on the books for 30 years and you know it's needed and i what i found interesting around the whole conversation was nobody caught on to the fact that if you want to have renewables if you want to have wind and solar power you need something that you can shape it with, and that's what this dam will do. But the other thing about Site C is it, it'll, it'll help us electrify the northeast part of the province for where the oil and gas is. And it's a huge win on the, on the reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions because it'll reduce the methane dramatically and how, and how we're powering that area. And if we do that, it'll actually have, we'll, we'll, reach our, we'll reach our climate goals. So I think in the nuance of the politics of this thing, got a bit crazy when the people didn't actually realize that they were politicizing a project that was needed for a whole bunch of reasons. Do you think that uh, that John Horgan uh, had some strategy behind this, that he charted a path that would gain him a certain amount of votes, uh, but ultimately would result in going ahead with a dam like he did yesterday? 
I think I think they did a lot of political thinking on this as to how can we get ourselves through this, out of this, and look like we've done something. Because, you know, I know for a fact, because I know some of the guys in that caucus pretty well, that there were some pretty tough conversations in and around that. There's factions there that wanted to shut it down. There are factions that wanted to go ahead. Some of their support groups, like the, you know, the private sector unions were saying don't do it because we got we got all our we got a lot of our people working up there and you know and then if you go community by community it doesn't matter where you know in the, in the premier's own riding there's seven people that actually work at site c in the minister's riding over in nelson's there was five or six who were working at site c there's people from all over the province that are actually working up there living in different communities and so i think it was you know really how do we get to a a decision on this thing that gives us some cover, so that's why they sent the thing to the BC Utilities Commission, but with limited scope because they knew darn well that the, the Utilities Commission has never had the the size and scope to be able to go comment on the design and the value of a major dam and a long-term forecasting for power. That's never been their role. Well, speaking of politics and, and Site C, Rich, uh, Andrew Weaver uh, has definitely been neck deep in that. It caught my attention this week when he went on Twitter and threatened a recall campaign against Michelle Mungal prior to the decision uh, should the government forge ahead with Site C. However, uh, he has repeatedly said he is not going to pull his party's three-seat support from the from the NDP government, essentially keeping the NDP government alive to, to a great extent. Uh, so he won't use the ultimate trigger, but he's going to threaten recall. I assume that you're going to say that that's a bit of hypocrisy. Well, I think it's more than hypocrisy. I mean, you have to remember that Andrew Weaver was actually, when we did the climate action thing and came up with the carbon tax and, you know, the whole revenue neutral and all that, he was actually on the group of people that Gordon Campbell put together back then to do it. He was also up there smiling like a Cheshire cat um, in Hudson Hope when they flew up and they brought some of the people that actually built the Bennett Dam up to celebrate the fact that that the announcement that we were going to go, you know, we were going to proceed to the next stage of Site C, and he was supportive of that. And then, and I remember talking to him back then, where, you know, Site C was important for shaping green power, and this was green power, but it was also important for other alternatives. And somewhere from there to now, he's switched a couple times. I mean, he he didn't. I know that he didn't think that the NDP would cancel the project. He had said that, you know outside the chamber and other conversations but and it was never part of I think their agreement that, that they would not they would not approve it. So it wasn't part of the priority of their conversations. But yeah, and uh, you know, and he, and then he, he will get up and rail against the project the same project he was at the at the photo op and telling people what a great idea is we're doing it because it was so good for the green green energy stuff in B C and, and the outcomes it could bring. So I don't know the hypocrisy is it. He just he, he does change his mind a lot, is what I say. <laughs> That's very tactful, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just want to go back to that. I mean, he does hold that three seat support. I mean, if he was that passionate about stopping Site C, he could have easily said, "Listen, uh, Premier, I'm going to remove my support. I cannot continue." Which I think would give the government a lot more pause for thought, or would have given the government a lot more pause for thought. Something he didn't do, though, Rich. There is no question that if he wanted to, he could have threatened to take the government down over Site C because he had he did have that. We just came through a session, so there was a budget and a throne speech. And uh, 
And he could have said then, now may not have had the time to vote where would it actually bring down the government, but he could have said that and the budget and the throne speech in the spring in early February would have been in jeopardy because at that point in time, that's where he could he could actually trigger a, a confidence vote. Um, the interesting thing, though, I think on, on, we have to remember that if there was a confidence vote brought forward by the Green Party on Site C, given the fact that we were the government that actually saw the benefit of it and went ahead with the project, his three votes wouldn't have mattered. Hmm. Because we, we believe in the project and we would have supported we would support the project. We always have. We've never varied from that. And I was at the table with all the detailed work and the stuff that went into design that dying, the international consultations, all the work with First Nations, all the stuff that was done. I was very proud of the work we did when we approved that project, and I thought we'd done what was really necessary to do it right. And so I don't think you wouldn't change, like the B.C. Liberal position has been, we were going to build Site C. So if it had been a question of of, of, uh, of canceling the project or, well, it's not so much canceling, but them saying we'll vote against it if you cancel it, uh, or, or, I mean, sorry, not cancel, but go ahead. Right. Uh, the support would have come from our side of the house that we would have supported them going ahead because hmm. we believe in the project. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I want to cram in some other issues here. I think one of the bigger ones uh, is, is it's currently underway, uh, but it's going to be huge next year is legal marijuana. Uh, your thoughts on this process as it unfolds? This is a real tough one for everybody involved. Um, you know, we had started early discussions with your government. We didn't have enough details from the federal government, but they're going to have the supply. So it will be like, call it the tobacco companies will be production and all will be regulated by the federal government. So you'll have the stuff, the labeling that will say, you know, how much THC is in a particular product and that sort of thing. Uh, but there's also the, the on this one there's also the nuance about how many plants you can grow yourself and whether that has an effect on what the retail side of this thing looks like because uh, we do make our own wine and beer too right some people do make their own wine some people go to the you know the brewmaster type places and make some yep. beer or wine so I think that's the first piece the first the first step the government did here which is probably the right one is to say we're going to have the distribution control you know, through the same distribution system that we already have in place. Why, why create two, two streams when you've already got one that already knows how to distribute and where it's going to go? The next challenge would be is who gets to sell, and what does that look like? Who who retails? Is it retailing through a government system like the liquor stores, or in the liquor stores, or is it retailing separate? My only concern that I've expressed on all of that is is a number of operators that are out there selling marijuana today. And it's a known fact within the law enforcement community, and none of those, some of those, a lot of, a number of those operators are not just selling legally, but they've been selling illegally. I don't want to reward somebody that's been doing something illegally, just because all of a sudden it becomes legal. And then I want to make, sh- I would want to make sure that there would be uh, a very rigorous thing about whether there was any organized crime involved in any of those operations, because I think that's something we have some intelligence on, and we need to follow through on. Right, so rigorous and you, Then you go to the regulated things, same thing with liquor, where it's, it's, you know, it's basically criminal record checks for ownership, what's the corporations makes, all of that for licensing is done on liquor. We can do the same thing on on marijuana. It's going to require a lot of legislative work, uh, as the government has said, and we we've all known that. The speed of it coming at us is a challenge, I think, because I don't think we've actually know whether the supply that needs to be in place for the distribution of it across the country is is solid yet 
And so that's going to be one of the issues because if you can't deliver the product, what happens? And the other piece will be how 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 are you going to price it and tax it? Because you overprice it and overtax it, then what happens is the black market, the organized crime, will figure out a way to sell it some other way. And the reason for that is, is it happens even with cigarettes. If you if you watch, if one jurisdiction really raises the taxes on cigarettes uh, versus another, then you'll see a black market of cigarettes coming into that jurisdiction because somebody can make a profit on the arbitrage in between the legal and the illegal product. And so it's really important you get those pieces right. It's a big decision, and I think you know it will be. We'll probably see some health outcomes and things in the next decade as a result of the decision and what it does to, to for the future of healthcare as well. So we have to make sure we're putting stuff aside to do the research and understand this particular drug and its long-term impacts as we come through it. Rich, why don't we take a quick break there, uh, hit a commercial break, and we'll pick up this conversation on the other side. We're talking to the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, Rich Coleman. More with Rich right after this on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning to you and welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, Rich Coleman. Uh, in the last legislative sitting, you had a line of questioning in, in one of the uh, last week of, of meetings, and you were asking about uh, any kind of projects, perhaps, in Daryl Plekis' riding that may have been in play to get him a job as a speaker. Was that a fishing expedition, Rich, or is there something out there that, that has yet to well, see there's, today? there's been notional comments in the community that there's something out there, but the reason I asked the question is because in a variety of you know in a variety of venues he the speaker himself said you won't believe what the NDP are offering me to become the speaker and then he would go he would sort of comment on different projects and stuff in the community and if it had been said once I would have said okay well that's just a bit of bravado but it was said more than once to me uh, and so I thought the only fairness the thing was to ask the premier directly. I mean, I do know that during the period of time after the election and going into the decision uh, after the confidence vote and all that, that there were members of that caucus in contact with him trying to convince him to do this. Uh, My only question was, was there any inducement offered? Because that would have been wrong. And I thought the fair question, you know, during an estimates debate, the fair place to ask that question was there of the premier. And he says he has no knowledge of any of that, and I take him at his word. Okay. Uh, BC Liberal leadership race, I know you and I talked about that, and at the time there was no candidates. It's progressed quite significantly since then. I also know that you have a fine line to walk here, but uh, your assessment of the race as it unfolds right now? Um, I think we've got some good people in it. I, I think that some of them have built decent organizations and campaigns. Actually, probably all of them have. Uh, they each bring a different dynamic from their own personalities to the table, but I think we'll be served well with any of them. Uh, as we come through this, um, it you know it really is that today the two parties, the NDP and the BC Liberals, are neck and neck in the polls. If there was a, an election today, and that's without a leader, so I think obviously we get a leader, and we we you know sort of basically call it renewal or whatever, but you're refreshing the look of your organization uh, that it gives us significant confidence going into the next round of an election. Um, I think they're all finding the same challenge that we found in the election, though. It's difficult to get to your voter. Uh, You send out emails. If you send out too many emails from a group of six people in a week through to the membership, what happens is they're not necessarily opening them all. 
I think the challenge is getting the penetration to the membership one-on-one. So they travel the province, and they're trying to meet and connect with people in in groups and in ridings all over BC, and then also trying to sign up new members. And it's a big, it's 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 a big job, it's a tough job. And uh, you know, they're really putting a lot into it and uh, traveling a lot, and some into the thousands of kilometers across the province as they almost barnstorm from community to community to to meet the membership and let them know who they are and what they think and all that stuff. It's be healthy. I think it'll really get focused in, in the last three weeks of January. Yeah, I would think so too. Uh, I know you have to kind of remain strictly neutral in this thing as your role as interim leader. Any thought or possibility, Rich, that you may come off the fence at some point in time? I've always said that, uh, you know, I, I, I have, I've always said as I've come through this that I have, if I decide to, the right of just like any other member to decide if I want to endorse somebody. Uh, you know, my, my deal with the caucus when I became the leader was I would step down as the leader if I chose to run myself personally. Uh, but, you know, there, there, there there's only three or four people who have decided because of their position to remain neutral. Two of them are Shirley Bond and John Yap because they sit on the executive of the party as the appointments from the, from the caucus, which is correct because they are in the decision-making side and the rules side and all of that stuff as members of the executive of the party. And the whip who has a job, and Eric Foster has a job to be very balanced with the people when they're in session and their leaves and all of that. You know, So his balance and then Jackie Taggart as the uh, caucus chair. Um, and mine, I've, I've stayed neutral as well because I think it's up to this point in time they've, they needed to have the opportunity to fly. But also the difference nuance was managing it during session to make sure they all got the same amount of time away from the session so that they'd be out there campaigning if they were within, because they all had jobs to do in the legislature with the exception of the one candidate, Diane Watt, who's, who doesn't, isn't, isn't, isn't an MLA right now. So the other five are, so I tried to make sure that it was balanced and fair for them all the way through it, and I continue to do that. So here's the big question. You guys are going to have a new leader and uh, some kind of uh, refreshing of the party in the new year. Uh, what does the future hold for you? Well, the way I look at it is I'm an MLA. I've been elected as an MLA. I'll do the job that my constituents elected me for, and uh, and I will continue to do it. I mean, that's basically it, you know. Um the future after that, someday when another election faces us and what have you, there'll be a total different decision point. You've uh, you've you've had a long history in BC politics, Rich. And this is a, I'm going to try and pry you out Some of a people part- would tell you, Shane, way too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to try and pry you out of a partisan corner here. But as a, as an individual, as a person, Rich, who who has been uh, just you know spent years in this, what what is good? about political life and, and what what is not so good oh good question um let's try the not so good to begin with i think the not so good is the quickness for people to judge people on their personality rather than their abilities mm. uh, i think the world has changed since i started in this business in 96 to the point where today um there's somebody going to bully whatever thing i i say do or whatever on a pulpit like twitter who will spend their lives taking their negative feelings and just putting them onto whoever it is in public life. And I think that's actually changed public life from that standpoint. And I think that that, that's the one piece I think that's tougher uh, and has changed. On the other piece, I, you know, the good things are, you know, I I got so many things I'm proud of that I actually accomplished. 
uh, over the years that I've had the opportunity to do this job, and not just for my constituents, but stuff we managed to do in BC. And I'll give you one example because it is unique in North America and anywhere else I can find. British Columbia is the only place that where police officers in their cars are on the same real-time information management system. So something can take place in Fort S- in, 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 in Prince George, a crime, and that information will be in every police car in BC instantly as it's put in. Uh, so suspect information, all that stuff, connecting the dots electronically to fight crime. I really believed in that and took it to the wall to get it done back when I was Solicitor General. And I bump into police officers now all over the country who tell me that they wish their jurisdiction, whether it be another province or whatever, had done the same thing because some of them are on old systems because nobody can agree what to do. And yet our guys today are connecting you know, from intelligence-based policing using technology to actually fight crime. And I, I, I think that was... You know, just even that one opportunity to me, but there have been so many other things I've been able to be part of the decision-making process, including Site C, because I was a minister when uh, we gave the direction to proceed to the next level to try and get it to final investment decision, and then and Bill Bennett took it the rest of the way and did a great job getting it to the cabinet decision to build the dam, and you're part of it. And, you know, you look back on it from that standpoint, it's great, but I also look back on... 21 and a half years, there's a lot of people whose little files came through a constituency office and lives were changed because somebody took an interest in somebody's issue, whether it be constituency office staff or MLAs who actually do quietly some pretty good work for people that need it in their communities. And so it, it, it's that's the good part. I remember Terry Lake telling me once when I was asking him about public life, and he said it's a, it's a job where you go in every single day and you fight the good fight, yeah. and very occasionally you win. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and Terry, of course, was a terrific, you know, health minister in, in a tough, tough file, and and he had to deal with the the opiate crisis and did an incredible job. And people don't realize that the awards that his ministry received for how we handled it better than anybody else, and it still doesn't mean we beat it, which we haven't. But his leadership was remarkable but it was also emotionally difficult mm. because you're dealing with a file where people are actually dying and, and you wish you could come up with one more idea to stop it and 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 you're trying to do your best and he did he did a remarkable job but that that's when you get your small wins and and you you do take it i think emotionally on the chin sometimes yeah i think so too uh last question rich uh, with a new leader pending after the february 3rd vote uh, if you could take that new leader aside with your experience and uh, all the stuff you've done uh, and give him him or her uh, one bit of advice what would that be uh, my first piece of advice is make sure your doors open um i think you need to be in today's environment in in management of any kind if you're going to be in charge, you need to have your door open so people with the smallest issue on your team, whether it be MLAs or staff, have the ability to be able to talk to you and work it through and feel comfortable that you're not setting up, uh, for, for lack of a better station, like a gatekeeper-type operation. I think you really need to be more and more open so if somebody has something on their mind, they can come and see you immediately if you're not in a meeting. All right. That's an important part of management. I think it's really about we're in the people business, and and in the people business with your people, you need to be, have an open door and open mind because it's an, it's an ever changing world. 
Yeah. Uh, Rich, it's always a pleasure. I uh, always value the time we get to chat. Uh, so if I don't talk to you before, uh, Merry Christmas and you Happy too. New Year to yeah, you and your have family. Have a great one. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just looking forward to sitting around for a couple of days with family. And the other thing I'm going to do is make sure I'm not setting any alarms. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect, Rich. Always Take a pleasure. Care. Thank you, sir. That was the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition, Rich Coleman. Uh, he is a leader in the interim, at least, until a new leader is chosen this February when the party votes. We'll take a quick break on Inside Politics. On the other side of the show, we finish off with Premier John Horgan. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. We're in the home stretch now of the special two-hour year-ending edition of the show. Uh, we're finishing strong. On the phone with me now, Premier John Horgan. John, why don't we start with uh, with what was the big news this week with uh, Site C. I know that uh, you've said this was an incredibly hard decision to make uh, with all the factors involved, and I don't want to rehash uh, part of that, but I do want to ask you quite honestly, I, I know that some of your MLAs, uh, were bitter opponents of the dam, and you yourself have railed against it in the past. So uh, to what degree was this in the room, in the caucus and in the cabinet? Uh, how tough was it behind those closed doors to get to this decision? Oh, it was extremely difficult. Uh, all my colleagues uh, in cabinet and in caucus uh, uh, wrestled with some very challenging uh, issues here. It, it was a question of whether uh, killing the project and absorbing $4 billion in debt on, the, on, the, on behalf of all British Columbians was better than proceeding to have a, 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 an asset at the end of the day in the form of a dam creating electricity and capacity uh, for people in the future. And that, that was the call we had to make. And for many people, myself included, this was, it was extremely difficult. And I know there are people in your listening area that are, are di- bitterly disappointed that uh, we made the call we did, but uh, the project was 25% completed. The uh, impact on stopping it would have made it very, very difficult to, for us to deliver on on a whole host of other issues that are important to people, like making sure we're building schools and hospitals and, and other transportation infrastructure, not just uh, transit, but, uh, you know, four-laning uh, Highway 1 from Kamloops to the Alberta border is a commitment we made. Uh, significant capital costs there uh, to create jobs and create uh, opportunity to move goods and services in the regions. And uh, we need to have the resources to do that. And, and had we killed the project, that would have foreclosed on many of those ideas. Any hard feelings with some of your colleagues right now? Well, you know, I, I think uh, what I tried to do, and, and it was genuine and heartfelt, was to express the emotions that all of my colleagues were feeling when we made this announcement. I, I made no bones about this. This was a difficult day. And I think that my colleagues needed to have the space to also say this is a difficult day. But they also understand, uh, in Cabinet and in caucus, that, uh, look, we have to make tough choices. That's what governing is all about. And I'm very, very proud of how uh, my colleagues have handled this. This was not the place they expected to come to. We assumed that the Utilities Commission evidence would be overwhelming. And uh, it did confirm many of our, our concerns about how the BC Liberals handled this file. That you know, It questioned the forecast assumptions on what the load growth would be. In, in, for hydro in the future. It questioned uh, whether or not sufficient uh, mitigation was in place to address farmland and, and indigenous rights and so on. All of those things were, were confirmed, but ultimately uh, it was past the point of no return. The cost to taxpayers or ratepayers, whether it be hydro that absorbed the, the debt and 
and then a resulting 12 or 12 percent or more annual increase in in uh, hydro rates or if we absorbed the province absorbed the debt on behalf of all british columbians that would have impaired our ability to to build the province so uh, I'm, I'm proud of how we handled it, and it's tough days ahead. I've had some very, very, very difficult phone calls with people and a couple of face-to-face meetings with friends of mine who are saddened by this choice, but it was the right choice for BC. You made a comment in your announcement about labour agreements uh, concerning the dam as you forge ahead now with Site C. So uh, what will the labour picture there look like under your government? Well, one of the one of the surprising uh, results of our investigation, whether it be through the ministry uh, of energy or BC Hydro, the the Ministry of Finance, or through the Utilities Commission, was how few apprenticeships there were uh, at this point in time. We're 25% through the project, 2,000 people working, and only 49 uh, apprentices. That's just not acceptable. If we're making multi-billion dollar investments in infrastructure, we need to be training the next generation of skilled workers. And we want to make sure that the next generation reflects the diversity of uh, British Columbia. And that's what community benefit agreements do. It would ensure more women, more Indigenous people, more uh, vulnerable populations get access to the training so that they can make their lives better and and contribute to building this great province. Uh, Those are things that I think all British Columbians support. We want to make sure local hire provisions are, are, are more uh, uh, more reflective of what the needs are in the community. We want to make sure that local businesses get opportunities. When you're spending that kind of money, public money, uh, in a community, whether it be Fort St. John or Kamloops or, or Victoria, you want to make sure that there's a, a community benefit to that, and that means making sure small businesses get access to the procurement opportunities. And, that, and that, that's what community benefit agreements will do. What about making it a union shop, John? Has that been brought up, or are you going to maintain sort of the current union, non-union mix up there? Well, we're working with uh, BC Hydro. Uh, we're going to be putting in place a new oversight uh, committee that will include the private sector uh, officials from the finance ministry as well as hydro officials to oversee the project. We want to make sure that this $10.7 billion figure is the final figure. We don't want to see more creep or, or, or scope expansion on that. Uh, so uh, we're going to be working hard to make sure that uh, wh- whatever the uh, arrangements are on labor, which is a significant cost uh, in any project of this magnitude, uh, is done in a way that meets the needs of uh, ratepayers at BC Hydro, but also uh, uh, ensures that we're uh, providing jobs for locals and, uh, and training new people for the future. Yeah, you kind of snuck into my next question a little bit there, but uh, as you pointed out, we're 25% of the way through this thing, and costs have gone up, what, 2 or $3 billion. Uh, 75% is left to do. What assurances can you give the people of British Columbia these costs aren't going to spiral out of control? Well, what the, what the experts tell me, uh, Shane, is that uh, you, you have the degrees of certainty. The more work you do, the closer you are to the end, right? So you have a better, higher degree of probability uh, that you're going to be coming in on budget, and that, that they have a 90% uh, certainty. Uh, when they started the project under the Liberals, they had a 50% certainty, and 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 I'm that's uh, that was just a choice that the former government made, and and I think you have to do that. Uh, uh, the, this 50% certainty question uh, always arises when you start a project. You don't know what you're going to uncover. They did anticipate the uh, geotechnical challenges. Uh, they didn't anticipate the magnitude of the geotechnical challenges, but those have now been addressed. I guess what I would say is that the amount of work that's been done has has demonstrated where the 
the uh, tension cracks were going to be and what the consequences of that were. Now it's a matter of the spillway contracts and the generation contracts and the, the generation house housing, as well as uh, uh, turbines and so on. So those those costs are are more fixed uh, than you would have at the uh, at the civil works component, which is what we're just completing now. All right. Uh, let's talk about housing. Um, I think we're aware of sort of the issue in Metro Vancouver and supply, demand, uh, the unaffordability, the cost, all that kind of jazz. But uh, in my opinion, and it's been especially sort of, uh, you know, obvious to me now that I've gone from Metro Vancouver to here in Kamloops and kind of outside the bubble looking back in, that this is a crisis that so was once a unique to Metro Vancouver issue that now is has claimed a lot of the province in its grip. But we're seeing a real estate explosion here in Kamloops. We're seeing a population growth massively as a what we call here affordability refugees arrive in the city. So, John, as you look to solve this thing, and a lot of weight's going to be on the February budget, how are you going to untangle this convoluted ball so as people's equity uh, isn't adversely affected so that uh, Kamloops, communities like Kamloops are seeing this influx, which is great for us, uh, aren't adversely affected? It just seems very complicated now. Well, it is, and and you're absolutely right. The people who are uh, selling out of the lower mainland and moving to the regions, whether it's to the island or the interior or, or the Okanagan or the north, uh, are bringing with them uh, more money than they thought they would have, and that uh, leads to competition for st- housing stock in, in the regions that they're arriving in, which drives up costs. So we have a, a it's a two-part problem. It's a supply problem. There aren't enough housing units. That's why we see zero vacancy rates on the rental side. Uh, you don't see as much uh, supply on the market for uh, market-driven uh, family homes. And so we need to make sure that our the development community and local councils have the tools they need to be sure they're building the appropriate housing for the appropriate time. And in Vancouver, what we saw was uh, just an explosion in uh, one-bedroom condominiums. and But the market didn't want one-bedroom condominiums that needed for families two- and three-bedroom units, and those weren't being built. And and the speculation, people buying up the one-bedroom apartments or one-bedroom condos uh, from offshore uh, led to uh, an explosion in cost. And so we need to address the demand side, get the speculation out of the market in the lower mainland, and that will ease pressure around the province. But at the end of the day, we need more housing. And it's really graphically obvious in, in communities like Kamloops and Kelowna, Uh, And in my town of Lankford on the island, where people are coming uh, with a bit of capital in their pocket, in some cases, looking to buy, and uh, they're competing for uh, a limited number of units, and that puts pressure on the rental units because people who were renting are deciding to sell, and and that means we need to build more rental stock. And so we're working with, as I say, uh, Selena Robinson, the minister responsible for municipal affairs, is also responsible for housing. She's also responsible for TransLink, the major transportation or pardon me, uh, uh, public uh, transportation uh, system in the Lower Mainland. So she's got all of these things in her basket, and we're trying to make sure that that she's able to work seamlessly with the development community, with municipalities, as well as with transit providers, so that we can build in the right place at the right time. And the February budget will be the start of that. Uh, I know there's a, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, frustration. Uh, why didn't we move faster? But we, as you know, uh, we move very quickly on a host of other issues that we felt were more pressing. Uh, no more pressing than finding a place to live, of course, but uh, we started with uh, 2,000 modular homes. Uh, I don't know how many, if any, Kamloops has picked up on, uh, but there are communities in the interior, in the north, uh, Surrey, Vancouver, where these modular homes, which are quick to build, uh, can get the hard to house into a home, uh, which takes pressure off of uh, 
uh, on the homeless side, which then gives you more time and BC housing, more energy to put into uh, social housing or, or uh, not-for-profit housing. So we want to get the whole works. You've got to be at the bottom end of the market as well as the top end, and, and it's a challenge. And, and as you say, the impact on equity is critically important. We don't want to uh, be overly aggressive on the demand side and then lead to people losing uh, uh, losing a good deal of money that they've invested in their home. Uh, I do want to pick up this housing conversation, but uh, why don't we take a quick break, uh, run some commercials, uh, and if you can hang on tight for a second, Premier, uh, we'll get back to you on the other side. More with Premier John Horgan on Inside Politics right here on Radio NL after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Premier John Horgan on the issue of housing. John, how much of this equation on affordability and housing uh, rests on solving the homelessness issue? John, I was talking to housing experts who say this is a critical component. I mean, obviously it's multi-pronged, but this is one important part of it. Yeah, and that's why I say the uh, the modular homes, the 2,000 units that we announced in September, another 1,700 units uh, on the uh, not-for-profit side, uh, we need to be doing both at the same time. I think what what we really need to keep uh, front and center, though, is the is the absolute lack of rental housing stock that's appropriate for families. And and when you've got, uh, I, I talked to a family, uh, Shane, during the election campaign, a woman who has four children. Uh, was living in a two-bedroom apartment in, in North Vancouver, and uh, the uh, owner of the building uh, was going to redevelop, and she had to find a place, and she was already uh, th- uh, having four kids in one room. Now she had to find somewhere else to live, and she had uh, she was a healthcare professional. Her husband had a good-paying job, so between the two of them, they had uh, a pretty uh, decent family income, but they were panicking at how far away from their workplace they'd have to go to find appropriate housing. And the housing they were in, they, they were in at the moment, was already inappropriate. So these these are social and economic challenges, and, and as if we don't grapple with them uh, effectively, we'll create a bigger problem rather than f- find a solution. All right, let's talk about marijuana, which I think is going to be one of the bigger stories going forward into the new year. Uh, one of the hugest public policy shifts we've seen in a long time. A lot of weight on the spring session. I know Mike Farnworth telling us that some 18 pieces of legislation will have to be tinkered with to some degree, not to mention all the other ancillary work. Can you get it done in the spring sitting? Well, I talked to Mike just this morning in Cabinet about that very thing. Uh, I've been doing year-end interviews to, you know, Looking back at 2017, which was a pretty uh, historic year for us here in British Columbia, uh, and uh, one of the big challenges is going to be, will we be able to meet the federal timelines? Uh, Mike has every confidence that the 18 or so uh, separate pieces of legislation we'll either have to introduce or amend can be done. But what I'm hearing from people who are asking me in the media and in the public is, well, are you going to be able to do anything else? Are we going to be totally consumed by cannabis? And my answer is we're going to meet uh, our objectives, uh, complying with the federal mandate of legalization. We're going to be there for enforcement and distribution and, and compliance with uh, Health Canada's rules and other rules that will flow from this. But we have other things we need to get uh, get done, child care, housing. Uh, we have to continue to find ways to find new markets for our forest products and, and other uh, industrial and economic activity. Those are those are the things that really matter to people. I think the public is miles ahead of us, uh, policymakers, when it comes to cannabis, and they assume that well, this should be simple. Well, truth of the matter is, it's not simple. Uh, but I'm confident we can get it done. When I was at a first minister's meeting, the first one I ever went to back in uh, October. 
I was the new kid on the block, and uh, I was. I said, "Yeah, this is no problem. We'll be able to get this done." And all the others were looking at me like, "Oh, that poor fellow. He doesn't know what he's know what he's in for." But but I, I then explained to them that here in British Columbia we have uh, a, a history of um, illegal cannabis cultivation and a fairly robust uh, black market. We have a dispensary system that's cr- uh, just emerged in the past couple of years, as you know, particularly in the Lower Mainland, but really right across the province. And so the public here is ready for this change, and we have to just make sure we do it in a, in a seamless way. We want to make sure we get the criminal element out of uh, marijuana. We want to make sure we're protecting kids. But the public is anxious to uh, proceed with a, a more rational way that prohibition has not worked. Prohibition has been negative for the economy and negative for uh, society. Uh, the law enforcement costs will be significant at the front end. We don't want people uh, smoking pot and driving cars, but uh, we don't want people drinking and driving cars. And we managed to, uh, despite you know decades of effort on that file, we still have people that uh, are foolish enough to drink and get behind the wheel. We want to make sure that when cannabis is legalized, we don't have a, a, a spike in, in impaired driving. That's my biggest concern. Yeah, and if any other jurisdictions that legalize are any example, enforcement's going to be one of the biggest pieces immediately out of the gate. Uh, and I know that here in Kamloops, and I'm sure in other communities as well, there are some scarce resources when it comes to policing. Anything the province can do there to help out on the enforcement front? Well, that's one of the the issues that I hear from municipalities all the time is, that, okay, we're more than willing to work with you, but we're going to pro- probably need some help, on whether it be on law enforcement uh, or in other areas when it comes to uh, the the number of uh, locations that want to be distributors or, or retail outlets. So we're working, uh, Minister Farnworth's working on the mix on the retail side. Uh, he's also uh, working on the public safety side. So again, I've got, uh, my, as, I, as they say, I've got my best man on it, and I'm confident that uh, that we'll be able to meet the July guidelines, uh, or the deadlines rather, set by the federal government, and that we will have in place guidelines that make sense to people and, and make sense to communities. Okay, so John, Earlier in the show, Andrew Weaver talked about uh, grandfathering in existing marijuana operations uh, in certain parts of the province, uh, obviously illegal today. But uh, here's a question for you. As we transition to this legal marijuana environment uh, and we wait for whatever retail sales model your government rolls out in the new year, uh, whomever sells marijuana, once this system is up and running, should there be a screening process in place uh, to ensure that uh, whomever is running uh, Store X uh, is not linked to, involved in uh, gang activity, uh, crime, uh, organized crime, etc.? The answer to that is, of course, they should be. Uh, that, that's one of the challenges. If we don't get the black market and the criminality out of the cannabis industry, we will have failed. All right, John, you've been great. Thanks, man. Have a great Christmas. You as well. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Bye-bye. That was Premier John Horgan, and that's it for this year-ending two-hour special edition of Inside Politics. We'll be taking a break for a few weeks over the Christmas and New Year holiday season, and we'll see you right back here on Inside Politics on Radio NL in the new year. My thanks to my guests on the show today, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, uh, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, BC Liberal Party leader Rich Coleman, and of course, Premier John Horgan. And my thanks to you uh, for tuning in, listening every single week to Inside Politics and sending me all your feedback. Uh, it is much appreciated. It's been a pleasure to do the show, and I look forward to picking it up and seeing you all again in the new year. Until then, Merry Christmas to all of you and a Happy New Year. And again, thank you for listening. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com. This is NL News Director Shane Woodford. On behalf of myself and my wife, Catherine, Merry Christmas. 
Christmas and a Happy New Year. And of course, my little guy, Henrik. Merry Christmas, everybody. What comes next, Henrik? Happy New Year. What? <laughs> Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.